You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, good morning, everybody. Glad to see that you are here and have survived the humidity. It's like officially summer in Ohio. Here it is, right? So just a quick little glimpse as to where we've been in this uh, teaching series, Cross Reference. We, 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 before this, we took a look at what Jesus said, these, these things that he said that was just like almost by nature controversial, or at least made you raise an eyebrow. And then this series, Cross Reference, is this kind of look into the theological doctrine of Christology, the study of Christ. And this is kind of my take. I think if you're going to be clear about one thing in the Christian faith, you could pick a lot of things, but if you're going to be clear about one thing, you better be crystal clear about who Jesus is, what he did, and why that's so important. And so that's really the heart of, of this series, Cross Reference. We talked about why did Jesus have to be born of a virgin? What's that about? Why is that important? Why did he have to be fully God and fully man? Why did he have to live a human life? Do you ever wonder that? Like this idea that he sympathizes with us and knows what we feel and think because he's been there. Last week we talked about the atonement. Why did he have to die on a cross? Why all the, the pain? And so this week we're going to be talking about why did he have to rise from the dead, which feels like an Easter sermon. You're like, we were just here. Hang on a minute. So I want to look at this from a little bit different of a lens. Why is the resurrection so important? And, and here's kind of, at least kind of where I come at it. I think a lot of us, um, at least myself some days, I think we accept the idea of the resurrection in principle, but we really struggle when it comes to our practice. Here's what I mean. I think Easter feels like this giant, great victory over sin and death, and it absolutely is. But then the question comes, well, if the resurrection is this victorious thing in the Christian life, why do I feel so defeated and discouraged and so afraid? Easter is like this giant wave that crashes up on the shore, but then life seems to have this inevitable undertow, right? And we're like swept out to sea again. Jesus himself, he says these crazy things. He says, I will be your peace. I will give you peace. And we go, well, yeah, well, then why do I feel so just uh, tense inside these days? And he also says, I will never leave you. I will always be with you. And I hope this doesn't sound cynical or disrespectful, but there's parts of us that go, okay, why don't I feel that way? Why do I feel so alone? I don't think I'm alone and feeling those things or wondering those questions. I think there's this great disconnect between what we say and celebrate on Easter with like confetti cannons and yeah, and then life just hits you. And so this is where we're going this morning. We're going to talk about the doctrine of the resurrection. And just like every one of these weeks in this series, we're going to ask just three kind of basic questions. First, what does the doctrine mean? Why is it so significant? And then what are you supposed to even do about this thing? And I'm just going to get right out in front of it and say, I think the doctrine of the resurrection is more significant than any of us really have taken into account. We'd say it, we believe it, we celebrate it, but there's something in here that I think a lot of us, at least for myself, for most of my Christian life, maybe we've missed something. So, 
First off then, what does this doctrine mean? And if you're a note taker, we're going to be walking through some scripture here in just a minute. And I'm going to give you a definition of what we're, what we're talking about. But let's hit the back button and start this whole scene of the resurrection a few hours before this on Good Friday. Here's the scene. Beaten and hanging on a Roman cross, Jesus just exhales his last breath from partially collapsed lungs. Only a small crowd saw it. Among them, two men, who up until this point have been kind of these like clandestine closet converts. They've been hidden. They've been careful, like following Jesus kind of from the fringes. But now that all of this is all over, they step forward. One of them carries the property deed to a tomb, and the other one is carrying a jar full of burial spices. This is John 19, verse 38. You can follow along, flip there, scroll there, turn there. Here's the story. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. This is this first kind of clandestine convert. Nicodemus also, you remember Nicodemus, he's the one that has this conversation about, with Jesus about being born again. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Picture that. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So they take Jesus' body, they put him in there, and they leave. And then the story shifts a little bit to include two other men who are a little more familiar Now, on the first day of the week, this is Easter Sunday, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And she ran and went to Simon Peter, right? And why is Peter's always like the first one up, isn't he? So we'll watch this, though. So John, who's writing the Gospel of John, has a really kind of a coy way of referring to himself. John refers to himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. It's kind of like a little take that, Peter, Right? Then the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. So Mary has this desperate urgency in her voice. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran, I love that, he outran Peter. He got there first, this is like his little thing. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. And Simon Peter came following him. And went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, we get it, John, then also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he, that is Jesus, must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So it feels like we were just here, it's because we were. This is an Easter text. This is Easter morning. This is the scene. So here's what we mean when we say the doctrine of the resurrection. We're going to talk about this, and then we're going to kind of blow it up and unpack it. 
Three pieces. Jesus rose in body and in spirit. That's the first piece. By a supernatural work of the Father to signify sin's final defeat. So we're going to talk through this. This is a, there's a lot in this statement. But first, here's the thing. Jesus' resurrection is one of the most unbelievable claims in all of history. And not surprisingly, skeptics have thrown out various objections to kind of explain it away. And that's not hard to understand. Because the more unbelievable the claim, the more likely objections are going to be raised. Right? That just kind of makes sense. And so for the next few minutes, before we really get deep into it, I want to name four of the most common objections to the resurrection and provide a quick kind of response for each. Um, Now, I am neither the first pastor to talk about this. Um, I'm not the best to talk about it. I'm definitely not the most succinct. That was not a spot for an amen, so glad nobody took that. So if you want more resources, here's the thing. If you want more resources about the apologetics around the resurrection... Um, You can do a couple of things. If you're watching online this morning, you're going to see a link in the comment thread. You can follow that link. We've created a separate reading list just built around this idea. Okay, And if you're here in the room, you can head to ncchapel.com slash resources. There's a ton of content on there um, for this message and then other stuff. So ncchapel.com slash resources. We just kind of created some kind of extra meat on the bone for those of you that want that sort of thing. Um, but before we get into the objections, though, one, one like maybe final cautionary word before we get into it. Um, in meeting objections with answers or responses, we're tiptoeing into this field called apologetics. Okay? Apology, an answer. It's not like an I'm sorry. It's, it's an answer. And here's the thing. I believe that the Christian faith is reasonable. I believe it is logical. Okay? However, apologetics has limits, and we need to say that, I feel like. It's not a matter, salvation is not a matter of reason alone. Tell me if you've ever had this experience. You read like a really good like Christian book or a theology book, or maybe you saw something really great on YouTube, and you're like, oh man, that totally speaks to this conversation that I want to have with this person, and like, There's some evidence here that demands a verdict, right? And so you send them the book or you send them a YouTube video and you're like, oh man, I can't wait to talk about it. And then like nothing happens. And you feel deflated. And you kind of smack your head and you go, gosh, why don't they get it, right? Here's why. Because no one is ever arm wrestled into the kingdom. If saving faith was a matter of evidence or information, the Western world would have been saved thousands of times over. I mean, we've got books upon books upon books and videos upon videos upon videos, right? Apologetics may crack the ice, but it can never warm the heart. Something else has to happen, something underneath, something deeper than I can understand. Evidence, answers, logic, whatever else it might be, might be the kindling on the fire of faith, but it never lights the spark. Something else has to light it. Someone else. Someone who loves cold-hearted sinners like me pursues us, calls us, chases us down. And so in my experience, just as a pastor, and maybe you you have this experience too, in my experience, apologetics, which we'll get to in just a minute, can do two things. One, for the skeptic, apologetics can reveal holes in conclusions that were once thought to be impervious. Just like, wow, maybe I I didn't think about things from that angle. Maybe I'm not as smart as I thought I was, which we could all do with a little bit of humility, okay? But the second thing is for the believer, 
Apologetics can further solidify what you already believe to be true about the faith. Like this just shores up something I've already become convinced of, which is also a good thing. So with all that caution out there, if you're listening this morning and you find yourself skeptical of the resurrection, I hope these next few minutes may prompt you to consider some of your conclusions. Um, And if you're here and you're already going, man, I'm in, like I'm there, bring it. I already believe. I hope this just further strengthens what you already love about Jesus. So, four common objections to Jesus' resurrection and, and a quick word in reply. Objection number one, the stolen body theory. Now, here's the idea. Jesus died. We'll give you that. But he didn't rise from the dead because resurrection's impossible. So the only way you get an empty tomb is somebody snuck in and stole the body. Okay, first question that comes. Who's going to do that? Who is this? And you have a couple of options. Here are three. Jewish establishment could be one, the Jewish religious leaders, the Roman authorities, and the disciples. We're going to get to the disciples in a bit. So for now, let's look at the first two. Here's the scene. Christianity is spreading like wildfire across Jerusalem. For the Jewish religious elite, this is a dangerous cult. And for the Roman imperialists, it's political insurrection. Both of those concerns are centered on a person named Jesus, this quasi-mystical rabbi. Both groups actually stood to regain their influence by proving that Jesus was still dead. Make sense? For the moment, their causes were temporarily aligned. And all you need to do to shut down this movement, all you need to do to kill all this momentum around Jesus, all you need is a body. All that anyone ever has to do to prove that Jesus is a charlatan and that Christianity is a sham is to produce the body. But nobody ever did. So that's these first two groups. They have them, there's no motive there. They would, they would stand to gain by producing a body, and they never do. Okay, how about the disciples, this third group? Now, first, I can honestly see this. The disciples stealing the body because they have a motive, right? Think about this. For everyone who denied or doubted that Jesus was the Son of God, the idea of a resurrected Savior kind of shifts the balance in your favor, doesn't it? Like, dude, if we just, like, hide the body, no one ever finds him, lots of people are going to believe us. Here's the problem with this one. Every one of the disciples, except for Judas who hung himself and John who died of old age, every other one died a martyr's death. Now what that means is they died believing, confessing, teaching, and preaching that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. And if all this was just some elaborate hoax, let's just say like Peter somehow snuck past the Roman guards on Easter morning, heisted Jesus' body, dumped it in a river, kicked the rumor mill over into motion. Why would 10 men willingly die for something that they knew was a hoax? It doesn't make any sense. When the proverbial gun was put to their heads, they all said, yep, dead, buried, rose again. I can become pretty self-convinced of a lot of things, but not to the point where I believe a willful lie to the consequence of my own death. And so this theory, when you really look at this objection, it kind of trips over its shoelaces before it really gets going. Like, nobody could do this. Objection number two. This one's called the shock theory. And here's how this one goes. Maybe Jesus didn't really die on the cross. Maybe he just had a really bad Friday. And maybe, like, he went through all of that. And maybe what happened was, like, 
in the tomb. He somehow revived. He was just in shock. He was buried, but he revived, moved the stone, and then vanishes from the scene, giving the impression of resurrection. In quick answer, two problems with this. First off, Roman executioners were really good at their jobs. I don't mean to sound grim or glib, but to say that Jesus somehow survived the crucifixion would be like saying someone sat down in an electric chair, had 20,000 volts shot through them, got up, and then after a quick nap said, hey, what's for lunch? Like, this doesn't happen. This is like, doesn't make any sense at all. Add to that that the Gospel of John tells us during the crucifixion that a Roman soldier shoved a spear into Jesus' side, and some of you know this, blood and water came out. Now, why does John include that little detail, blood and water? Not to sound gross, but that is a physiological phenomenon called effusion, where in the crucifixion of, of a body, water floods the tissue and blocks the lungs and crowds out the heart, and that's how they tested to see if these guys were dead or not. It was a common practice, and if water came out, he's already dead. Roman executioners are really good at their jobs. But then there's a second problem with this one, and this is just like logic. You just have to think this through. Even if Jesus somehow survived the cross, which is incredibly unlikely, there's a second problem. How does a man who went through the physical trauma that Jesus went through, 39 lashes across his back, tied to a whipping post with a glass-tipped spear ripping his flesh apart, passing out from blood loss while he's walking through town carrying his cross. How does a man who goes through all of that, 36 hours later with no medical attention, somehow rise up on his own, move a boulder the size of a Toyota Corolla, and walk out like nothing ever happened? Like, how does Jesus, his body lacerated, bleeding, barely recognizable as a human, just walk past Roman guards on Easter Sunday morning, move through Jerusalem without attracting any attention, and just vanish from the public eye? That just seems incredibly unreasonable to me. It seems way too slim. And so this one, too, this one kind of falls flat for me. Objection number three, the spirit theory. The spirit theory. Here's the idea here. Maybe Jesus didn't rise in body, but maybe just in spirit. Maybe they're just hallucinating, like he's Casper the Friendly Ghost or something, right? This would explain how he's able to travel through locked doors, which he does post-resurrection. This would explain how he's able to just like magically appear on the seashore in John 21, right? This would explain how he ascends, because ghosts kind of do that sort of thing, right? This kind of makes sense. Here's the problem. <laughs> In his resurrection appearances, Jesus deliberately draws attention to his risen body. Thomas, I'll give you this one. Thomas, who history unfortunately names Doubting Thomas. Here's the scene. It's John 20. Thomas tells the other disciples, look, you guys may have seen him in the garden on Easter Sunday. Maybe you saw him later that night. But until I put my finger in the nail holes and touch where that spear went in, I'm not convinced. Just listen to this. A week goes by. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And then in John 
1 John chapter 1. Some of you guys remember we did our study in 1 John last summer. How does John kick off 1 John? He says, that which we've seen, which we've touched with our eyes, that we've seen, we've touched it with our hands, that we proclaim to you. And so the New Testament is very clear that this Jesus who rose from the dead is not just a spirit. He ate with these guys on the shore. You could touch him. How that works, I don't understand. But Jesus is a bodily risen Savior. He's got scarred hands. And so the only way to get to this objection is to rule out most of the New Testament. So, okay, speaking of that, here's the fourth objection. The story theory. The story objection, the story theory. This one goes like this. You know what? This whole thing is just made up. You Christians. This is just like a spiritual Paul Bunyan story that you guys have kind of made up to soothe some deep inner need, repressed need for hope. So in response, first, I do have a deep need for hope. We've all have a deep need for hope. I just hope you're not repressing that. So that's not that off to say that. But honestly, here's the answer for this one. Legends take time to build. You ever thought about that? Legends don't happen overnight. So follow me on this. Here's the timeline. The events of Jesus' death and resurrection take place about 33 AD, give or take. Mark completes his gospel by 40. You could do the math. Luke also starts his research about the same time, interviewing eyewitnesses like a reporter slash doctor. Paul writes his first letter, 1 Thessalonians, where he talks about the reality of the resurrection in 51 AD. So there's an 18-year span here. That's not a whole lot of time for a legend to be born. And so what we see is this catalytic claim, Jesus rose from the dead. What? that gets almost immediate traction wherever it is taught to the point where within like 16 to 18 years, it's already considered ironclad doctrine. This is kind of hard for us to imagine 2,000 years later, but here's what this would mean. So here we are, 2022. 18 years ago was, there it is, 2004. I just leave the math to you guys. I went to Bible college. I don't do this stuff. 2004, Ronald Reagan died in 2004. Okay? Now, if I came here today, this morning, and said, guys, you're not going to believe it. Ronald Reagan rose from the dead. What would you th- Half of you would probably go, praise God, depending upon your theological and political stance. That's neither here nor there. That's a separate sermon for another day. But all of you would look at me and go, dude, you're delusional. You'd be looking for a new lead pastor within 15 seconds after I stepped off of the stage because that doesn't make any sense. You could go to his grave. and like, there's the body. You could produce the death certificate. You remember when it happened. That's not enough time for a legend to be born. And so this objection kind of seems like shoehorning a modern sentiment into a historical setting. It just doesn't work for me. So if we're saying the resurrection actually happened, this resurrection is an actual historical factual event, here's what it means. Again, here's the doctrinal confession. We're saying that Jesus rose in body and in spirit by a supernatural work of the Father to signify sin's final defeat. All three of those elements are what we're going to get into a little bit deeper now. So, question number two, besides what does this mean, why is this even significant? Here's the story. I love the story so much. Here's the story. G.K. Chesterton was standing on a London street corner when a reporter approached him. Sir, He said, I understand that you recently became a Christian. May I ask you a question? Absolutely, Chesterton replied. 
If the risen Christ suddenly appeared at this very moment and stood behind you, what would you do? Which is a great question. It's an awesome question, a question that might probe you to think. But as awesome as the question is, it's not as awesome as his answer. Here's his answer. Sir, he is. (laughs) Here's what I want. It's not enough to live confessing that Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. We have to ask ourselves, if that's true, what difference does the risen Christ make in my life today? If Jesus' resurrection is so hugely important, why do so many of us live like it's not? We live these fearful, defeatist, shoegazer lives, unaware of the supernatural movement of God and overwhelmed by the seemingly unstoppable movement of man. If we really believe that the risen Christ is really, truly, honestly, personally with us, as he promised, how would our lives look any different? And for this, we're going to head straight to 1 Corinthians 15 and just let Paul unfold this for us. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes to a struggling church in a skeptical culture, and he gives us really four reasons why the resurrection matters. 1 Corinthians 15, we're just going to take a look in verse 12. Reason number one, Jesus' resurrection matters because Jesus' resurrection gives faith meaning. It gives faith meaning. Here's what he says. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Now remember, this is a church he's writing to. And so maybe that speaks to your heart. Maybe you're going, "Ah, I'm not so sure about this whole thing. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. This is Paul saying, look, if this is just some giant elaborate hoax, if this is all made up, if this is just legend, some fanciful story, then everything we do is a complete waste. It's like falling through the sky and trying to grab onto a cloud to catch you. Like you're just coming up with nothing. Prayer. How many of you pray? Don't raise your hand, just think. How many of you pray? If Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, prayer is just wishful mumbling to an imaginary God. Preaching. Just a waste of air and needless strain on some poor man's vocal cords. Church. Church just becomes a social club of religious, easily duped, sheep-type fools. And I think it's worth stopping here for a second because... In a world that does not believe the resurrection actually happened. You you understand that, right? This is not like popular. (laughs) Most people don't believe this. And that Jesus is on the same level of Buddha or Muhammad or Dalai Lama or Oprah. Do you realize that the faith that you profess has a very strange teaching at its core that a man actually rose from the dead? And I don't mean to be flippant or crass, but are you prepared to be that weird The resurrection is what distinguishes our Savior from any other. But here's what worries me. Like Christians in the uncomfortable or the very comfortable West right now, I think we're okay with persecution, at least in theory. We're okay being weird in theory. But when we're not even comfortable being inconvenienced or like when we're comfortable being unpopular, like uh, how are we going to get there to where the disciples got? 
I need to remind us that bearing the name Christian means that the majority culture is probably going to think you're a little bit off. Of course we are. We follow a resurrected Jewish rabbi named Jesus. And don't go soft on that. Don't expect to be well-liked. And definitely don't expect to be understood. I feel like we just need to talk that back a little bit and go, guys, this is what gives our faith meaning. And if we go soft on this, like, then we're just like any other world religion that just has a savior still in the grave. Second reason why this matters, though, because Paul is just getting going. <laughs> Jesus' resurrection announces our freedom. Take a look in verse 16 of 1 Corinthians 15. He says this, For if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. He said that before. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, which he's already said, and you are still in your sins. You're still in your sins. Could you imagine what that would be like? Last week, we said that justification is the legal act where God acquits a guilty person of sin. He says, by virtue of Christ's sacrifice, I find you not guilty. So, if the atonement accomplishes our justification, Jesus' resurrection announces it. It proclaims it. If the atonement is the statement, like, Roger, you are not guilty. You are free. If that's the atonement statement, the resurrection is the exclamation point at the end of it, like driving the point home, making sure that we get it. I heard the craziest story the other day, and you guys know I'm a sucker for good stories. This is in... Um, Early April of 1945, in the death throes of the Nazi regime in Europe, Buchenwald concentration camp was liberated by American soldiers. 21,000 starving Jewish boys and men. 21,000. The American soldiers entered the camp, finding the Nazi soldiers having just left hours earlier and announced in English that the camp was liberated and that the Jews were now free. Now here's the really curious thing. After years of imprisonment, years of hopelessness, years of oppression, upon the news that they had been finally set free, do you know what happened? Absolutely nothing. They just stood there. Some thought that since those pronouncing victory were also wearing military uniforms, that this might just be the new oppressor. Most, though, had simply lost the ability to imagine freedom. Even though they were pronounced free, they were paralyzed in fear. But then something even more amazing happened. This American Jewish army chaplain named Rabbi Herschel Schachter said to them in Yiddish, the language of the captives, Shalom Alechim Yadin. Peace to you, Jews. Irresent free. You are free. And then, after hearing the announcement made in their own language, the good news of their freedom gradually swept over the camp as they started repeating it to themselves like, oh my gosh, it's actually true. We're free. And here's why I bring that story up. And you know the most heartbreaking thing Christians who are free but live like they're not. God the Father loves you too much 
to let you live in a life that is shackled by sin. And that's the reality that prompts Paul's announcement in verse 17. If Christ hasn't been raised, you're still in your sins. The oppressor is still reigning. You're still shackled to the bedpost. You're still stuck. But because he has been raised from the dead, you're free. How much must the Father love you? So Paul's trying to get across. Now, having said that, Paul pushes further, and he announces a third reason why the resurrection is so significant. Reason number three, Jesus' resurrection hints at what's to come. And so next, Paul makes this dramatic, striking statement. Here's what he says, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. But... In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, we'll come back to that, of those who have fallen asleep. What's he doing? First, Paul sets up a hypothetical, okay? Remember, he's a lawyer. He loves doing this. Here's what he says. Okay, 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 yeah. Some of you say Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead. Okay, let's say you're right. Let's pretend. I'll give you that one. And what we'd expect from Paul's pen might be, well, that's no really big deal because the atonement, remember? That's the... So what if he's still in the tomb? We have the atonement. We're good. But that's not what he says. He says, if that's true and you're right, and if this is all be a sham, right, we shouldn't be congratulated or admired for putting on a big host. We should be of all men most, what? Pitied. Pitied. Paul is tying our hope so closely to the resurrection that if that didn't happen, I'm done. He put all his chips there. If that didn't happen, I'm out. You can destroy my faith and shatter my dreams if you produce the body of one man, but no one ever did because no one ever could and no one ever will because no one ever can. But then, let's remember, Paul's a lawyer, so he drops the charade in verse 20. Here's what he says again. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And I love that because he goes, well, I'm done with this what if stuff. Just here he goes. The truth is he has been raised from the dead. More than that, he says, he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What is that? Now, Paul does something brilliant. He drops the legal language, and he picks up the poetic. He says that Jesus' resurrection is like first fruits. Now, what is that? It's a really strange image. Lawyer Paul is borrowing from the agrarian world. This is a farming word. And in this culture, farmers taste the first batch, the first fruit that comes out. They taste the first one to tell what the rest of the harvest is going to be like. Sit with that for a minute. Paul sees the final resurrection, this one-day act of God, yet out there in the future, at the end of all things, when our bodies are restored, no more aches, no more pains, no more diabetes, no more cancer, He sees our bodies, these tired, creaking, virus-prone, vulnerable, susceptible, fragile things in a world where we are constantly reminded of the flickering and dimming light of our own mortality. Here's what this means. Jesus' resurrection is the pre-authorization, the promise, the guarantee that initiates yours. Sobering thought for all of us. Sit with this for a minute. And I don't mean to be glib on this either. Death is out there. Our bodies 
are fragile reminders of that. But for those who trust Christ, death has the paradoxical effect of leading to life. Death doesn't win. Death's voice seems like this ever-present hum for now, but in the scope of eternity, it's not even a whisper. Life is peeling back the edges, lightening and loosening its hold on everything we see. And so Jesus' resurrection is just a peek, just a hint from the Father saying, if I did this, just you wait. Reason number four. Jesus' resurrection prompts courage. Here's what he says in verse 51. (laughs) I love this because he sounds like a preacher on a roll, which I kind of (laughs) love. He says, behold, I'll tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is, or death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And all of this is great right now. This is Paul just going, ah, oh, there's better things coming. But then there's Pastor Paul's encouragement for this church who, like us, are pitched and tossed in the seemingly overwhelming swells and squalls of a crazy world. He says, therefore, in light of all of that, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. His point. Do you ever feel like giving up? Of course you do. This world is designed to make you feel that way. That work that you're doing, that parenting or grandparenting that is so hard to get through, that job that's killing you, that relationship you're desperate to restore, you ever feel like you're swimming against the current? Sure you do. Like the deck is stacked against you? How do you keep going? By remembering that Jesus' resurrection is not just a fact of a forgotten yesterday or a hope for a distant tomorrow, but a present reality for today. Now what does that even mean? Last week we talked about how this world is not our home, right? But have you ever noticed how much time and energy and resources and emotional weight we spend trying to convince ourselves that it could be? (laughs) We buy stuff that'll help us feel more comfortable and we're frustrated when it doesn't deliver. We look to our jobs for significance only to feel perplexed when they have the opposite effect. We build relationships to encourage and lift us up and then we get cynical when they don't. Those things aren't bad in and of themselves, but at the risk of sounding stoic, those things matter, but they cannot be all that matters. In light of the passing nature of life and the surety of the resurrection, shouldn't we hold those things a little more loosely because they don't last, and a little more delicately because they're so fragile? Life is short, so fragile. Time is fleeting, and eternity is over the next hill. Here's what this means. Remember all those people who argued with maybe one time in the last couple of years about some issue that crossed your news feed? <laughs> those relational bridges that got burned, doesn't matter who lit the match. It's time to forgive them now. It's time to seek forgiveness. It's time to seek reconciliation. It's been time. 
Remember those political fissures and fractures that somehow worked their way into our souls, warping and twisting the deep down beautiful human things? Give those worldly joy suckers an eviction notice. (laughs) We're Christians. We are rooted in love of Christ and love for Christ, and his kingdom has no end. And if something is coming that's better, and it is, and if by comparison this world is so short, and it is, shouldn't we be known as the kind ones, the ready-to-forgive ones, the generous and gentle ones, the ones easy and eager to overlook an offense? the ones who hold life and its many offerings loosely and delicately. I think we should. So last question on this, and then we're going to close. What do you do with this? So I have three parting questions for you. And this is just stuff for you to go think about on your own, stuff that I can't do for you. I've got to go here. Here's your first question. What am I counting on for hope? What are you counting on for hope? No one else can answer that question for you. For some of you, it's something in the bottom of a bottle. Okay, every bottle's got a bottom. (laughs) For some of you, you're looking for a relationship that like, you just, oh man, if that could happen, if that, then this. Okay. For some of you, it's a job. For some of you, it's another paycheck. For some of you, it's a nice new whatever. What are you counting on for hope? You've got to ask that question. Second question that you've got to ask, why is this valuable to me? Why is this valuable? Why am I looking to this so much? Why am I pinning so much on this and putting all my chips in that place? (laughs) And then probably the third question, this is the hardest one to answer. Third question, though, is, is it working? (laughs) Not to go all Dr. Phil on you, but how's that working for you? That's the way we find out what our idols are. That's the way we find out what we value. As I look at this thing that I'm putting all my hope in, and I go, why is that so valuable? And then is it even working? And if you feel, feel frustrated by a world that's not panning out, I'd like to offer you an alternative, and his name is Jesus. And he is coming back. We're going to talk about that next week. He has died, and he has risen from the dead. I wonder if you know him today. Is he yours? Let me pray. Lord, we do say thank you again for the surety, the verity, the rock-solid conviction that you have sent your son into this world to die a painful death on a horrible cross, only to raise three days later and pronounce this final victory over sin and death and all the evil in this world that one day will be rolled up, bundled up, blown on and swept away. In the meantime, Lord, help us not to be overcome. Help us to focus on who you are and what you've done for us. We love you, Lord. Bless us today in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.